done so already, please turn back with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, and from verse 32. Okay. So as we um, move slowly but surely through the book of Acts, what we find is that the author of the book, um, Luke, what he does is he occasionally interrupts the narrative of events. He occasionally interrupts the the storyline, the story of what he's saying, and he he interrupts it to insert into the narrative some short and uh, very concise summary passages. Now, you might remember that he did that earlier on. He did that in, in chapter 2. He interrupted the narrative, the flow of the storyline to tell us about... Do you remember the, the four things that the church was devoted to and dedicated to? Yeah? And well, he did it in chapter 2. And what we see today is, again, in this section that we're looking at, he, he, he does it in chapter chapter 4. He interrupts this, the flow of events, the the narrative, and he stops and he inserts these short summary passages. And and let me tell you, the the summary passage that we've got in front of us today is awesome, isn't it? I mean, it is absolutely fantastic. You, You read it and you really get a sense of the love that the believers in this church in Acts had for each other. Genuine affection, genuine love. It is a, 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 a portion of Scripture, really, that is all about the essence, but also the expressions of Christian unity. And so, because of that, what we're going to do today is we are going to think about our congregation. And we're going to ask whether we are loving, whether we are united, and if so, if we are, are we, are we united around the correct things? And yes, maybe predictably, we're going to focus on three points or three aspects from this text that we've got here, but what we'll do, we'll look at three points, but for each point, what we'll have is one practical application for us that will hopefully really work to enhance the Christian unity and the love that we have in the congregation. So you're with me? Three points, three aspects, but also three practical applications that will help Christian unity. So with that said, let's, let's get into it. Let's think about a first heading, a first aspect, first point. Let's think about the God word, unity, of the church, not Jedward, okay? The Godward's unity of the church. Okay. If this morning we were to conduct a, a survey in this place here, a, a survey about unity and, and fellowship, I wonder what we would come up with. If we were to do a survey and go around with a bit of paper, you know, if we were asked questions like, uh, what do we think that unity is all about? What do we think would enhance Christian unity within this congregation? I wonder what we would say. Would we say uh, that it's all about spending more time with each other? Is it about 
uh, more congregational outings, more outings to, to coffee shops. Is that what we see? What should we be thinking when we think about the unity of the church? Well, when we turn to this, this, this new section that we've got here, and we look at this first verse that we've got in verse 33, what we find is the most incredibly helpful verse, a verse in verse 32 that gets to the very heart of Christian unity. Do you see it in verse 32? If your Bibles are open, I'll read it. Here we go. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. It's great, isn't it? All the believers were one in heart and mind. And what happens when we take that and we cut it up and we dissect that verse is that we learn quite a few helpful things, okay? Because first thing we learn is that this church that we are talking about in Acts, okay, in Acts chapter 4 of this church, it was massive. That's what we learned. It was absolutely huge. Over the last days, I've been reading a book by a, a pastor from Birmingham, Alabama, okay, and the guy's reading a book, an okay book, and uh, in the book he sort of makes a passing comment about his own, you know, his, his congregation, the congregation that he is a pastor of, and it kind of just blew my mind, because he's talking about his church in a sort of offhand way, and he, he just makes the passing comment that there are about 10,000 members of his church, Ten thousand people—that sort of doesn't even compute. I can't really get. I've got no sort of point of reference for that at all. You know, it's like a Bob Dylan gig or a sort of Rolling Stones gig or something like that. Like ten thousand people going to this guy's church. You know, but you know what's incredible? That's the sort of thing that we're dealing with here at this point of point in Acts. Because you see that word that's at the beginning of verse thirty-two, where it says "all the believers." Do you know what that is in the original? It's more like all the multitude of believers. All the masses of believers. And that's right, isn't it? Because think about what we've been told. In, already in Acts, we've been told that 3,000 people were added to the church in one day. We've been told as well that uh, there was 5,000 men alone in the church at this, this point. Do you see it? This church in Acts at this point here was enormous. It was a massive church. But you see as well that that is not the point of the verse. The numbers. That's not the point. The emphasis is that this massive, huge church was united. That despite the fact that it's enormous, despite the the scale of this church, that guess what? All of the believers, all of them were together and they were harmonious. Now, that is just that's fantastic, isn't it? What a thought, especially for us as part of the, the modern church. Because I don't know what your, your church background is, but I can pretty much guarantee that if you've been in a church for a while, you know that what happens with churches is that they split, right? Churches, denominations, they split. I remember preaching a couple of years ago in the very north of Scotland. And I didn't know what to expect in this church. I hadn't been told much about it. But you get in the car and you go up to the place and 
you find it eventually, you go in, and how many people do you think were in front of me, you know? Any north of Scotland? Three. Three people in front of me, okay? And do you know what I could tell? Because I spoke to them beforehand and afterwards. They hated each other, you know? There's only three of them. But they, there was just so much tension. These people were not speaking to each other. There's only three of them. But look what we've got here in Acts. We've got thousands of people. Thousands of them. And all different ages. And all different stages. And all different, I'm sure, ethnic backgrounds. And I'm sure as well, all different financial situations. And what do we see? Thousands of them. But they were all as one. They were all united without exception. And so what we've got to figure out is, hang on, how? I mean, how's that even possible? You know, it's, it's not like these Christians in Acts chapter 4 were any sort of less inherently sinful than, than we are. So how come these people were so together and so united? Well, I think we get the answer to that partly in the, the, the second half of this this phrase in verse 32, because we've got the first bit, don't we? All the believers. But then what does it say? It doesn't say all the believers were united. It says all the believers were one in heart and mind. Now, you like that phrase, do you? I love that phrase. These believers were one in heart and mind. It's a lovely phrase. And you sort of get from it, don't you, the, the what would you say, the connection or the intimacy, one in heart and mind. But you see, there's more to the phrase than that. Because what we've got to appreciate is that in the background is that great command that God, his people, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Now, you know Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, even if you think you don't know Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Now, think about the similarity to the language. This is Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. It says... Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And then what what do we hear that this church was here? It was of one heart and one mind. In the originals, actually, it was of one heart and one mind and one soul. Do we see what we've got here? This unity in this church in Acts. It wasn't just a unity that appeared out of nowhere. And this unity that we're reading about, it wasn't something that was sort of artificially fabricated through congregational activities. This was a oneness. This was a unity that came from a mutual devotion to God. This was a God-focused, God-word unity. And then... Let's build on that. Think about this, okay? It was, yeah, we see it. It was devotion to God that was the focus of the unity. But but it was the Spirit of God that was the force behind the unity. I'll say that again. Now, please get this. I'll say it again. It was the devotion to God that was the focus of the unity. But it was the Spirit of God that was the force behind the unity. The unity. What does that mean? Well, if you paid attention to the reading earlier on, or if you've been here 
over the last uh, couple of weeks. Can you remember what the uh, back? Can you remember what's happening in the church at this point? Remember, it, they've been opposed uh, these Christians by the Sanhedrin and by the, the authorities. Remember that. So what did they do? Remember, they got together and they prayed. Remember what happened? You know, the, the church gets together and prayed, and then you know, imagine the, the building starts to move and it trembles, and the building starts to to shake during the prayer meeting. And then, do you remember what happens? What's the sort of climax of that? They are filled with the Holy Spirit, aren't they? Now, you'll remember what the primary result of that filling with the Holy Spirit was. Remember, they were enabled to to speak the Word of God boldly, proclaim Jesus Christ boldly. That's the primary thing. But there was a secondary consequence of this filling with the Holy Spirit. What was the secondary consequence of the filling with the Spirit? It's this. Do you see? It's this newly enhanced oneness, this newly enhanced unity with our fellow believers. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. This unity that we've got here, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, we see the same thing way back in, in, in chapter 2. Do you remember that, that sort of summary passage in chapter 2? And Luke tells us of that you know, situation where they're devoted to fellowship. Remember that? And you, know, you read it and you think they, these guys love each other in chapter 2. And uh, what a sort of idyllic situation in the church. But do you remember what immediately preceded that as well? What came before it? Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you see? It is the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit of God that was enabling, that was providing this God-focused, God-word unity within the church. And that is where we can sort of bring it down into the room just now and we can apply this to the life of London City Presbyterian Church. Because, you see, friends, we're getting this wrong. We are getting unity wrong. See, we're, we're too focused on, the, on thinking that unity is an external thing. We're thinking about unity as being us seeing more of each other and of unity being about, you know... Uh, sparking up or developing friendships. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong. They're not wrong. But what we've got to understand is that unity in the church, it begins here. It begins in our hearts. That unity in this congregation begins internally rather than externally. And so... That takes us to the first of our three practical applications this morning. Since unity is a work of the Holy Spirit, we must ask God for that. We must ask God to provide unity. And so what, here we go, what what I would encourage you to do is that you take this topic that we are talking about today. You take this topic of unity, Christian unity, and you make it a point for prayer each day this week and beyond. And you pray not 
offer more opportunities to go to coffee shops with people, okay? Don't pray that. Pray instead for yourself. Pray for your heart. Pray that you would be devoted to God. And pray that the Holy Spirit would so connect you with your friends and your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ that it could be said of this church that we are London City Presbyterian Church. We are believers. One heart and one mind. So a God-word unity. God-word unity of the church. Okay. Let's consider... Next, the generous unity of the church. Okay, the generous unity. And we've seen the, the, the internal essence of unity, if you like. Now for the external expressions. And let's think about favorite words. Okay, I don't know if you have uh, a favorite word or not, but it's true, is it not, that uh, children, all children, have got a favorite word, whether they... Whether they know it or not. You know, because the children's favourite word, or certainly their most commonly used word, is the word mine. Isn't it? I mean, we hear it all the time from, from children. No, hands off, that's mine. That's mine. And now, hopefully, as adults, we uh, do not replicate that. We don't act like that. But maybe it's true that the attitude remains, that we never really grow out of that, do we? That even as adults, we still cherish and we still, what would you say, guard jealously our possessions, the stuff that we own. Now, what we learn in Acts chapter 4 is that that sort of attachment to stuff, okay, it's not healthy, but we learn as well that that is not a Christian virtue. Because just think with me about the, the church's attitude here to the material possessions. Do you see it now? Have a look at the second part. If your Bibles are open, second part of verse 32. Because this is a challenge. Isn't it? We've seen all the believers were of one heart and mind. But then it says, no one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. Now, that's remarkable, isn't it? You know, you think about that, what an attitude. That's, that is not just that they, they, they didn't hold their stuff with a sort of firmly clenched fist. It's more than that. It's that these people in this church, they did not even think about that, their stuff as belonging to them. Now, do you see what's happening there? Do you see how that radical attitude toward possessions was coming about? Do you see it? You see, these Christians in Acts, they didn't jealously guard their stuff. Why? Why was their attitude different? Because the gospel had changed them. The gospel of Jesus Christ had severed their attachment to material things. I mean, these were people who could look at stuff and they could weigh up what was important in life. So they could look at their things. They could, on one hand, see the, the, the preciousness and the value of Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, they could see the worthlessness of the material. And I'll tell you this, 
as their understanding and appreciation of the gospel only sort of grew and it flourished and it matured. Do you know what happened? Their attachment to material stuff just diminished. And it just faded away. I mean, it's a wonderful sort of gospel-centered attitude to possessions that we're reading off here. But, but do you see what it actually means in practice? To get it, I think what you'd have to do um, is skip down the page from verse 32 to verse 34. I'll read it out. Listen to what they did. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and essentially gave it to the poor. They sold them. So this gospel-centered attitude, the gospel so penetrated their hearts that these people could actually sell their stuff to help out uh, other Christians. Now, here you go. You need to listen to me here, okay? This does not mean that after the after church, you go home and you have your nice lunch and then you go into Gumtree, okay? This does not mean that suddenly you're going to sell all your shoes. And please don't tell me tonight that, you know, Andy, I went home and I've sold all my furniture on eBay. I don't want to hear that. That is not what this is about for a second. No, we're told, as we've seen before, that this was the selling was voluntary and it was occasional and it was proportionate. It was done when there was needs. But do you see that it was done? Why do you think Barnabas is mentioned at the end of the section? You see, Luke is saying that this detached, gospel-centered attitude to stuff wasn't just a pipe dream. It wasn't just some sort of utopian, distant dream. These people really did this. Sold stuff when there was need. This happened in the church. And so again, let's apply this. Let's tie it down. What does this mean for us? Well, I know this is hard. But firstly, I think what we've got to realize is that in very few areas of Christian life are we so far removed from New Testamental teaching than this here. We're nowhere near this, are we? And then we've also got to realize that this is real for this congregation. Just by the very place that we are, the very nature of the expense of living in London, the very makeup of this congregation, poverty is an issue. It's real. So what about a second practical application for us this morning? We pray, that's the first one, we pray for unity, and let's pray for this gospel-centered attitude to, to stuff. But secondly, we must also be willing to express unity in giving sacrificially to those who need it. And maybe as a side note, please see that it should be done through the church. They sell, and they give the money to the apostles at the apostles' feet. We should, if the need arises and we can do it, we sell, give to the church. Why through the church? Because I, I suppose there's, there's 
more likelihood that the leadership of the church will be aware of the financial needs of the church. If we give through the church, there'll be less likelihood that we succumb to the temptation to do our acts of righteousness before men. We do it through the church. But we do it. We do it. We should be willing to demonstrate that inner unity of the Holy Spirit in an outward, Christ-centered, sacrificial attitude to our belongings and possessions. The generous unity of the church. The Godward unity, the generous unity, then the gospel-sharing unity of the church. The gospel-sharing unity of the church. So, Every year, every single year, there is a report put together by various agencies. And it is a report that deals with the top priorities for the continent of Africa. Um, And it's quite interesting reading. Um, This year, in the the sort of editorial to, to this report, the guy who was writing it, he was saying that the top priority for Africa should be the employment and education of young people in Africa. He was saying that loads of agencies and loads of people are getting the top priority wrong. They're saying healthcare, healthcare is the way forward. Where he was making maybe a straightforward but quite an interesting point, he was saying actually if you educate the young, then a knock-on effect of that will be better healthcare and healthcare concerns. Now, there's a similar situation here this morning because there's the danger that when we are, as a congregation, thinking about the unity of the church, that we do what those other agencies were doing, that we get the top priority wrong. That we, when we're, when we're thinking about unity, that we get the aim and the goal of unity completely wrong. What do I mean? Well, follow me here, because we close with this, okay? So just follow me in that. In this section of Scripture, it's just a short section of Scripture, in amongst all that that talk, you've got generosity and love and, and, and so forth. You've got what almost seems like a parenthesis, don't you? There seems to be, there seems to be almost a tangent at one point in this short section. Because you've got, what have you got? You've got verse 32, it starts, and you've got, you know, believers in one heart and one mind, and you've got, you know, talk of love in verse 32. Then you move on a wee bit in verse 34, you've, again, it's sort of love and unity and the outward expressions of that. But then, wait a minute, that's verse 32, verse 34. Verse 33 seems to be unrelated, almost. It seems to be a different topic altogether. Do you see what it says in verse 33? So he's talking about unity above and beneath. And then suddenly Luke says that the church continued its witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus, that their prayers were answered, that this church experienced power in its gospel witness and gospel sharing. Why is he doing that? Going on. Why does Luke have an apparent, apparently different topic smack bang in the middle of this section about unity. Why is he talking about witnessing? 
Well, let me suggest that Luke inserts this verse about witnessing to underline what we as a congregation are in danger of getting wrong. That Luke inserts this verse about witnessing to underline that unity among believers is not the ultimate goal of the church. Do you hear me? Unity amongst believers is not the ultimate goal of the church. And this is what we are in danger of getting wrong, isn't it? It is. You know, we come to church sometimes hoping for friendships. And we come to church hoping to expand our social circle and to deepen relationships with other people. That's why we come to church. And again, hear me when I say that those things are not necessarily wrong. But hear me when I say that those things are wrong when that's your focus. That's wrong when that is the the top priority. Because you see, think about um, Jesus in uh, John 17. You know the high priestly prayer? You remember it, I'm sure. Now, just before he, he goes to the cross, he prays, and he prays to his Father. Do you remember what he prays? He prays, uh, May my people be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in, are in you. And, and we read that, and we go, Yes, there you go. Just before Jesus goes to the cross, just before his death, what's his foremost uh, desire? It's that his people are one, and we're delighted, and that's great, and that's cozy. And then we remember the verse ain't finished, and he keeps praying. He says, may my people be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see it? Unity is not the top priority. Unity has a purpose. Unity has evangelistic intention. That is why in this summary passage in Acts, Luke emphasizes the, this continued powerful witness of the church. It's so that you and I in here this morning, we don't think, ah, okay, oneness, togetherness is the be-all and end-all of the church. It's so that we realize that unity partly is there to facilitate the witness to the sheer majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. So here's our third practical application. We've seen that we pray. We pray for unity. And we've seen that we express that unity and generosity. But thirdly, if we want better relationships, if we want deeper fellowship and friendships with Christians. What do we do? We work together to witness to a lost world. That's what we do. We talk together about those we are witnessing to. We pray. We pray with each other about our witness. We work together for the glory of Jesus. Friends, if you get anything, get this. Unity in this church is not about you. And it's not about me. Unity in this church is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about 
is about a people so enraptured with the splendor of their Savior, a people who are so focused on his glory and so fixed upon the one who is enthroned and supreme and exalted that they don't even notice the differences between themselves, that they just bow down and they worship Jesus Christ in every area of their lives and they do that kneeling beside their brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Do you see it? That is unity. And that is what we have to ask God for. Let us ask God that he would make us in London City Presbyterian Church believers in one heart and one mind. Let's pray.